Let's pray momentarily. Father, I sense my need for you. We all sense our need for you. We're so grateful that you have given us your son. You've given us your spirit. You've enabled us to receive from your word and to know you better. I ask that you would reveal your words to your people this morning. In your son's name, amen. Well, once there was a wee little lad who was out on a hike with his dad. It was early in the morning, still dark and cold, well before the sun had risen. Daddy, where are we going? The little boy asked. Well, following along in his father's footsteps, to see the sun rise over the three mountain ranges, son. Keep walking. But Daddy, it's cold out here. I don't see anything. Why are we walking in the dark anyway? To see the sun rise over the three mountain ranges, son. Keep walking. But I don't want to walk. I'm tired. Why don't you carry me? You have legs, son. You need the exercise. Keep walking. Are we there yet? What are we doing this for anyway? To see the sun rise over the three mountain ranges. So after another ten minutes of this kind of talk, the little boy and his dad finally arrived at their destination, an overlook near the top of a mountain. The dad took a seat on a boulder and bid the boy come sit with him. On my knees, son. Look out there. What do you see? At first, the boy saw only blackness. That began to fade as a colorful light began to emerge. Slowly, the sky took on a blue hue with streaks of orange and red, ever intensifying as the circle of the sun began to rise above a distant ridge. The orange ball grew lighter and brighter, and soon everything around shed its blackness as trees and clouds and mountains came to view, more vivid than can be described. How many mountain ranges do you see, asked the dad. One, two, Oh, yeah, three. I see three mountain ranges. For the first time in his life, the young lad was seeing the sunrise over the three mountain ranges. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for bringing me here. Just like this little boy, we find ourselves walking through our own lives, headed somewhere, often following somebody else's lead, hoping they know where they're going, because the journey is dreadfully cold sometimes. It's often too dark to see where we're headed. We grow tired and weary in our journey, and frequently we ask ourselves, why are we doing this? Where are we 
going. For those of us who are wearied by life's journey, our text from Colossians will come as a breath of fresh air, a gentle reminder of why it is that we walk and where it is we are headed. For we're all on a journey through this life, the success of which depends upon whom we are seeking and how much we savor him along the way. Now, we've been trekking through Colossians for several months now. And Colossians has given us a couple hints of how to walk, how to do this walk. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 6, a few weeks ago, we were commanded to walk. Take a look at this by way of review. Colossians 2, 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Notice that this command told us where to walk. We are to walk in Christ, a Christ who has been given to us. We've received him, a gift. Wherever he might be, we're to walk with him. Indeed, the text says we are to walk in him. And then back in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul even prayed that we might walk in him. Listen to what he says in Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10. From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So according to this prayer, there's a special way to walk. We should walk wisely in a way that pleases God. And we should walk in a way that bears much fruit on his behalf. But up until now, Paul hasn't given us many specifics in this book. He hasn't told us what to do while walking. He hasn't even told us what to look for while we walk. But all that changes with the coming of chapter 3. From chapter 3 verse on, the questions of what to look for and what to do are answered. Watch for this change as we delve into this morning's text, beginning in Colossians 3.1, as we read from the English Standard Version. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And you notice there were two commands, two explicit commands in those verses. Verse 1, seek the things that are above. Verse 2, set your mind on the things that are above. These will serve as two of our main points this morning. But first, 
We mustn't skip over that condition which so loudly presents itself at the head of verse 1. For indeed, every command that follows it will be impossible to do if this condition has not been met. You must walk with Christ, but you can only do this if you have been raised. Point number one. Raised from what, you might ask? Well, according to Colossians chapter 2, in a, verse, in a passage we looked at two weeks ago, we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Let's take a look at it. It's in Colossians 2, verses 12 through 13. Notice the language. Having been buried with him, that him is Christ, in baptism, in which... You were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. So according to this text, we were all dead in our sins. Yet we are no longer dead. Our sins have been forgiven. And now we've been raised along with the same one with whom we were buried. Of whom do we speak? With whom have we been raised and made alive again? With Christ. So when Paul says, if you have been raised with Christ, in Colossians 3, verse 1, he's referring to these truths in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. All of those who have been raised buried with Christ, have also been raised with him. Now notice the past tense of the verbs raised and made alive in all these verses. Each occurrence of raised and made alive are already completed actions. Those who have been buried with Christ are already raised again. They are not still dead. They're alive and kicking right now. And verse 1 of our text suggests another dimension about how far we've been raised. Like Jesus, we just haven't been raised from the dead to hang around our tomb. When Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't stay near his burial place. He got around quite a bit. According to the gospel accounts, he visited disciples on a road to Emmaus out of Jerusalem the very day he rose. A week later, he traveled 100 miles north to the Sea of Galilee, Galilee to give the Great Commission to his apostles. Eventually, he ascended to heaven and took his seat, as verse 1 says, at the right hand of God, where he remains to this very day. So in a sense, Jesus was raised all the way to heaven, and he didn't go alone. He took all those who were in him with him. Now Paul even alludes to this fact in a companion letter to the Colossians, the letter of Ephesians, which many scholars believe was written alongside Colossians. The wording's very similar in those two letters. Note what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6. 
And he raised us up with him and seated us with him, past tense again, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's why Paul can confidently command us to seek the things above where Christ is in verse 1 because we are already there. We already meet the necessary condition to do so. So just as the little boy in our opening story was raised to the mountaintop and made to sit on his father's knee, so we have been too. We have been raised to a place where we can do something similar. Namely, we can seek the things above. Point number two. If we have been raised, then we can and must seek the things that are above where he is. This is not just sage advice. This is not a suggestion. It's not an opinion. It's not a choice. It's a command. This is what everyone who has been raised with Christ does. In fact, if you are not doing this, then you are probably not actually raised with Christ. Now, why would I say that? Because Christ only raises those who have already sought him. He doesn't force anyone to seek him. All those who come to him after seeing him for who he really is, they want to come to him. Their desires are stoked by his beauty They find his compassion and his love for them simply irresistible. They follow him because they love doing so. They seek him out because he is so worthy to follow. He's so lovely to get to know. So this command to seek the things above where Christ is is not a hard one. For if you have been raised, seeking the one who saved you and the things associated with him comes supernaturally, by the Spirit he's made to indwell in us. It is foundational to walking in Christ. We cannot walk in Christ without seeking him right where he is, above all things. But what are these things that are above, referred to in these verses? When we read these verses, we get the distinct impression that the things above where Jesus resides must be heaven or in heaven. And we would be right. Jesus currently resides at the right hand of God, which is a place we cannot see with our eyes. So how can we seek for something as invisible as heaven and Jesus and the throne of God itself? Well, verse 2 will give us a clue. Notice how verse 2 words it. It says, set your mind on the things above. The things that can't be perceived with these eyes can be perceived with the mind's eye. And just because you can't see them doesn't mean they're not real. Would any of us try to argue against the existence of such things as truth, honor, Justice, purity, love, and moral excellence? Of course not. 
Concepts such as these may be invisible to the eyes, yet they remain as true as anything that can be handled or touched. In fact, when Paul says, seek the things above, who's to say that he doesn't mean things like truth and honor and justice and purity and love and moral excellence? Take a look at what he wrote in another companion letter, the one to the Philippians. This is a verse many of you are familiar with. Philippians 4.8. Remember this one? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Is it possible that when Paul tells us to set our minds on the things above in Colossians chapter 3, he means for us to think on the same things he lists in Philippians chapter 4? I think so. Why? Because each of these concepts are closely associated with Christ. They're attributes of Christ. Christ is true. Christ is honorable. Christ is just. Christ is lovely. And so on. So when you seek the qualities that emanate from Christ and recognize where they came from, you're seeking Christ also. But if we have been raised, we don't just seek the things that are above. We also set our minds on those things. In short, we savor the things above. Point number three, it isn't enough just to seek the things above. Those who have been raised fix their minds upon them, and they don't let them slip away. They think hard about them. They continuously ponder them, and in so doing, they begin to savor them. What happens if they don't? Well, the last phrase of verse 2 provides the alternative. If they don't set their minds on the things above, they will set their minds on the things below, or as the Scripture says, the things on earth. So what are these things on earth? To what is Paul referring? Just think of them as any thought that is in direct disobedience to Christ or anything not submitted to his reign. Whenever we forget that Christ is at the right hand of God reigning as king, we tend to stop trusting him. Our minds drift to things below, to thoughts of disobedience. So you see, setting our mind on Christ takes some work. It does not come naturally. Our tendency is to forget what Christ has done. Our tendency is to drift into unbelief and disobedience. That is why Paul commands it here in verse 2. If we don't make it a point to set our minds on Christ on a day by day, and hour by hour, and yet an even minute by minute basis, we will drift into unbelief. We will give way to sin, which leads to despair. So this command to fix our minds on Jesus is very important. It is, in many ways, the key command of the whole book of Colossians. All the commands that follow depend upon it. 
Later in this chapter, in future weeks, we'll learn about these commands. Some of them are like this. We won't be able to put off sinful deeds. We won't be able to put on righteous ones. That's later in chapter 3. Without first fixing our minds on Jesus. In chapter 4, we won't be able to continue steadfastly in prayer and walk wisely with outsiders and speak graciously to one another without first fixing our minds on Jesus. We can't bear good fruit and walk in Christ worthily without first fixing our minds on Jesus. It's no wonder that this command is the central statement of our sermon series. This command will become the tagline for our new church name. But for those who have been raised, fixing our minds on Jesus is not as hard as one might imagine. Actually, it is a restful endeavor. Indeed, it's even delightful work. Remember when Christ famously said that his yoke was easy and his burden was light in Matthew 11, verse 30? He wasn't kidding. If we have been raised, if we who have been raised remember where we are, seated in heavenly places, and who we are with, Jesus, this command is eminently doable. And there's another reason we can fix our minds on Jesus with great success. Because according to the next couple of verses, verses 3 and 4, those who have been raised are also hidden with Christ and someday shall even appear with him. So point four. For the hidden ones shall appear. Take a look at verses 3 and 4 again. Note the contrasts of two key words within each verse. Verse 3 says, your life is hidden with Christ. Verse 4 says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him. So in verse 3, our life is hidden with Christ. In verse 4, our life appears with Christ. It becomes visible. The opposite. Hidden, visible. The only other difference between these two verses is really the time frame they're talking about. Verse 3 is talking about the here and now. Our life is hidden in Christ now. But verse 4 is talking about the second coming of Christ. When Christ returns physically and he is Revealed, and he appears. Now our lives are hidden with Christ, but on that day our lives will appear with Christ. They will no longer be hidden. They'll be on full display. They'll be perfect. And they will be, as our text says, glorious. Note the very first phrase of our text and the very last phrase of our text this morning. If you have been raised, you also will appear with him in glory. If this glorious end state isn't motivation to seek him and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus now, then I don't know what is. 
So now, for some points of application. How do we set our minds on Christ? We set our minds on Christ by seeking him in the two places where he has revealed himself. As we learn today, Christ is hidden in God at his right hand. We can't see him directly, but he has revealed himself in these two places. Number one, he's revealed himself in his word. So if you let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, which happens to be Colossians 3.16, a couple weeks from now we'll talk about that one. If you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, you will most certainly find him and be able to set your mind on him. And we can learn quite a bit about Jesus from his word in various ways. We can study the Bible. We can listen to sound teaching. We can read good theological books. Or we can just talk about them with one another, one-on-one or in small group settings. But what about the other place to discover the revealed Christ? The other place where Christ is is in each of us. Remember, each of our lives is hidden in Christ. That means that if we train ourselves to look for him in each other, we should be able to find him. How is this done? How do you find the revealed Christ in each other? By seeking the things above in each other. By seeking the true and the honorable and the just and the lovely and the commendable and the morally excellent things that are put there by Christ. It's very easy to spot deficiencies in one another. It's very easy to detect flaws and faults and sins But it takes a concerted effort to spot the good, to spot the evidences of God's grace hidden within each of us, and to encourage each other with those discoveries. There's a popular saying going around social media these days that gets to this point. When complimenting another friend's selfie or profile pic, it's not uncommon to see a post that simply reads, My eyes are blessed. Or, you've blessed my eyes. It's a cute way of appreciating someone's picture or video and letting them know so. May we look for the beauty of Christ hidden in each other and let us know the same. If you've been raised, the Christ-likeness hidden in you will soon become evident to all. But what if you're one of those who has not been raised? Or at least thinks you've not been raised. You don't consider yourself a Christian. This Jesus talk has always been something that just goes in one ear and out the other. It's never been appealing to you at all. Well, remember the little boy I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon? Remember what it was like when he first got to the mountaintop? It was all black and dark and cold. He couldn't see anything. But then something changed. He began to see the light. Slowly but surely, the rays of the sun grew brighter and warmer, changing everything around him. Within a matter of a few minutes, his whole attitude had changed. As he was beholding the beauty of the rising sun, 
and so it may be with you. Perhaps the darkness around you has just started to fade a little as the colorful light of Christ begins to emerge. The beauty of the one who lived a perfect life and died a sinless death and then was raised and lifted to the right hand of God may be warming your soul slowly but surely. If so, heed the words of the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1.9. Listen to this. You will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Soon you too may find yourself raised with Christ and eagerly seeking him out. If you have any questions about anything you've heard or would like to talk about it, there will be people up front after the service who would love to lend a listening ear and even pray with you or just talk with someone you trust or perhaps the person who brought you. But for those of us who have been raised, let's summarize what we've learned. We've died with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. We are seated in heavenly places with Christ. Our lives are now hidden with Christ. And someday we will appear with Christ in glory. Therefore, let's stay fixed on Christ. Now and always, let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful that you are so patient with us. You seek us out. You change our hearts. You send your Son. You reveal how beautiful he is to us. And you draw us to you. Lord God, we thank you for the privilege to be able to seek you and to set our minds on you and to see you in each other, see your work. I ask that you do this in each person here today and in the coming days. In Christ's name, amen.